This show is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, the Justice League of board game podcasts. Find out more at Dicetower.com. episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This episode 304. Hello, hello everybody. We are super happy to be here. It has been a long couple of weeks. Oof. We have been moving an elderly member of the family and if you know how that is, you know how that is and if you don't, then you don't. But it's been difficult and that's why we were unable to bring a show to you last week so we apologize for that. Hello everybody, we are the Family Gamers. As always, I am your host Andrew and I am joined by my lovely and wonderful and also tired wife, Anitra. That's me. <laughs> so we did some traveling in the month of July and then we came home immediately set out to start moving uh, an elderly member of the family and then we went camping that was scheduled six months ago and, and then now we we're trying to recover did do the moving yeah we're still and, doing the moving and it's like all the work of moving house with literally none of the rewards so <laughs> yeah we don't even uh, get to like reorganize something. our board games or anything uh, nothing nothing so anyway so we uh we, we're sorry that we were unable to bring you a show, but we have done it this week, episode 304. This is our Jen Cant episode, I guess, because we are sitting at home recording a podcast episode, which is a great and wonderful and fun thing, but I'd rather be in Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing the social media posts and uh, more than ever before, I'm not exactly feeling FOMO, but just a, I wish I was there instead of here. Yeah, I think it's really because of our current tragic <laughs> condition and, and less about missing out on the show. Although, of course, Gen Con being an incredible show. For me, at least. I mean, who wouldn't rather have fun than do work? I mean, right? yeah, but for me, at least I'm looking forward to Essen. I get to go to Essen this year, which yeah. is a very special thing. So I do have that to hold on to. Well, I do have a fact for this episode. This was uh, actually provided by my lovely and wonderful wife, Anitra. As I was doing a bunch of other things, our fact for the episode 304 is that 304 three, is a trick-taking game popular in Sri Lanka, coastal Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, and Maharashtra in the Indian subcontinent. The game is played by two teams of two using a subset of the 52 standard playing cards. There are 32 cards in play, 7 through Ace. It's a trick-taking game. You can find the rules on Wikipedia. Thanks, Wikipedia. Thanks, Wikipedia. Thanks for saving us again. With three, not four. <laughs> and as always, we have another fact about our sponsor, First Move Financial. So we've been sponsored by First Move Financial for a while. Thank you very much. Who are they? First Move Financial is a financial services firm started by Donnie Carpenter. And his focus is to help normal families, like yours and mine, work with their finances. This isn't just investing. It could include investing, but also spending every dollar wisely, knowing when to transition from debt payments to making other important purchases, but mostly just intelligently navigating the money world. Donnie is a board gamer just like us, mm -hmm. so he completely understands the shelf of shame. Opportunity. You can go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to find out more and schedule a free call. And thanks so much to First Move Financial and Donnie for sponsoring this episode of the show. So, Anitra. 
Yes. There's a side effect to us waiting a week for this episode. Our what we've been playing isn't totally pathetic. Well, that's true also. (laughs) But no, it is now the month of August. And that means that it is time for the monthly report. Oh, man. The monthly report. My monthly report is sad. I feel like yours is probably more sad. Wow. Well, I mean, yours. Wow. You always apologize for yours. Everybody, did you I see? Looked at, I looked at mine and mine feels really spouse sad. Spouse on spouse crime that just uh, happened right here. Okay. How many games did you play in the month of July? 20 games. Oh, July. I played them 33 times. Oh, oh, oh. So 20 unique games, 33 yes. plays. Okay. I had 16 games, 25 plays. Yeah, that's really not where either one of us wanted to no. be for the month of july my h index is two yeah mine is three only because i played battleship three times and dodo's riding dinos three times i have dodo's riding dinos twice i have royal visit five times in wow the month of july. yeah i played that game a lot yeah you did i spent a lot of time showing that game to a lot of different people because it's really fun and i like it a lot Let's see, what else do I have here? So my, 69% of my games were played, air quote, on vacation. Haha. Which includes our time in the great state of Michigan and also our time camping. The yeah. vast majority of my game playing, 46%, were played on Saturdays, which is actually fairly unusual for me. Yeah, normally we get in a lot of game playing on like fridays and sundays and wednesdays yeah. and stuff like that it just it did not happen this month how about this 42 percent of my games played 42 which is by far the highest percentage the second highest is 23 were two-player games that's not that surprising i mean especially with royal visit on there five times yeah i played more games with asher than i did with you that also doesn't surprise me i feel like asher is probably one that you play the most games with on the regular yes yeah so which basically means he gets to play the most games period period yeah yeah Lucky kid. All right. So, I mean, I guess that's pretty much it for me. Royal Visit five times, Dodo's Riding Dinos two times, and the following games also two times. Hey, That's My Fish, which we played Mm -hmm. in Michigan. Pavlov's Dogs, a game that we need to review. I think we'll uh, have a really fun time with that review because that game is adorable. Rivers, Roads, and Rails. This is a Ravensburger game that is at your dad's house, which is one place where we were. Uh, on our trip, and a couple of games of Super Mega Lucky Box, which yes. we brought with us camping. Great that was camping a lot of fun. Yep. My most played for the month was actually Unsurmountable, which is a solo game. <laughs> you loner. <laughs> uh, no, I just didn't get that many opportunities to play games with other people. <laughs> okay. okay, that's fair. All right, what else you got? So, other things that we have played since the last time we podcasted. Oh, we're going right into that. You don't want to do any more of your... Uh... I already told you, Battleship, Dodo's Riding Dinos, and Unsurmountable. <laughs> okay. Those are my top three. All right. That made my H index of three. All right. Well, I have, I don't know, three games that I'd like to talk about. I think we should talk about Hey, That's My Fish. Okay. That can be one of them. Sure. Well, neither you nor I had ever played this before. It's basically Battleship. Just kind of in reverse. Yeah. Because you're taking the board away as you play. Yeah. It reminded me of playing Battleship on a rescuing polar bear's board. Kind of. There's a little bit more freedom of movement in Hey, That's My Fish. You have a little bit more choice, Mm -hmm. but that just makes it easier to completely block off sections of the board. (laughs) It's funny because I played Hey, That's My Fish a couple of times early in the month, and then I played a couple of games of Battleship late in the month. And of the two, I think I prefer Battleship still. Okay. Um, 
I certainly enjoyed, hey, that's my fish. You're traveling around the board and you're picking up the fish as you move your, your little penguins. But with Battleship, it's this straight up area control and trying to block off areas so that maybe you can't fully control that area. But if you can make it so that nobody else can either, that might still work out well for you. Yep. I mean, that really came into play both times that we played was just kind of this capturing of an area so yeah. that, you know, you could just basically take the whole thing. Yeah. And that's also true in Battleship, although when I play Battleship, that doesn't ever seem to work out for me. Hmm. It depends how many people you're playing with. I suppose so. And how well they can read your plans. All right. Next on my list is a game that I don't know if you got a chance to play. It's called Lattice Hawaii. So funny story. Lattice is a game I used to have on my phone years and years ago, and I played a bunch of it. I have never actually played it in person, ever. So, and, so I'm a little rusty on the rules at this point. The same game, but it had a Hawaiian markers on it? Yeah. Instead of, okay. So this is an interesting game because the point of this, it felt very much like a Quirkle or another game like that where you're trying to match both color and pattern mm-hmm. as you place these uh, squares on a grid. And the more you match, you get these tokens that allow you to do things like take extra turns. Yeah. Or if you have wind tiles, you can use a wind tile to shift a tile that's already on the board one space orthogonally, which Mm. might make it not match with other things anymore, but that's okay. And then you actually play your turn and put a piece down. So as you get these tokens, as they build up, you can't have too many of them. So you have to spend them. So you can spend three tokens for a wind tile, which you can then use to move something and play something else. And you cannot put something down where it would be invalid. So the Mm -hmm. more orthogonal relationships this thing has, the better your reward is. And each person has a kind of a face down randomized stack of tiles that they need to get through. And whoever gets through their set of tiles first wins. For some reason, just the way the tiles broke out, I had way more wind tiles than my opponent. Yeah, that can just happen sometimes. And I wrecked him. (sighs) All right. Like, it took two turns to figure out how the game works. I mean, again, it's, you know, if you've played a game like an Iota or like a Quirkle or, you know, something along those lines, you kind of get the idea of the pattern matching. Mm -hmm. I I guess Lanterns is similar in a lot of ways. You get this concept. And so it really wasn't hard to pick up. Um, yeah. And then figuring out a little bit of the flexibility with these wind tiles. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a very pretty game. The production quality was super nice. But that was Lattice Hawaii. I want to talk about Aldabas, Doors of Cartagena. Yeah. So we have a copy of this for review. We you do. got to play it. I have not played it yet. It looks cool. So It is a really cool card game of building a tableau, I guess is the best way yeah, to it put it. It is a tableau builder. Any of that. It's like about like Spanish doors or something like that. Yes. It is about doors in Cartagena. You're building a roughly three by four grid of these door cards. Every time you put down a door, you can activate the powers of some of the doors it's touching. So that's one layer of things you can do. But the main thing you're doing in the game is you're trying to build influence across these five different person types. Uh, So there's like a fisherman and a soldier and nobility, clergy. And the more influence you have in your tableau, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to do the special scoring condition for that kind of person. Okay. But some of those interact in really interesting ways. Like the fisherman's special scoring power is if you have the most influence in fishermen, you then can score more points for all the cards that are still in your hand, which means you actually want a bunch of high influence cards 
in your hand at the end of the game, which means you don't want to play them down to your tableau, but you do want to play them down to your tableau so you can get influence for the other scoring powers. Sure. So the whole thing ends up being this balancing act. On top of that, like many other games, even the ones you just mentioned, like Corkle, you can't ever put two identically colored doors next to each other. Oh, oh, so almost the opposite. So your only colors in the game are red, yellow, and blue. All of the different people types are symbolized by door knockers, which look really cool. And you can put similar people together, but you can never put similar colors together. Yeah, that sounds really neat. I would like to play that game. Yeah, it <laughs> it's really neat, and it's lighter and faster than I thought it was going to be, which I am pleasantly surprised by, as always. Right, the last game that I want to talk about is a game that is very well known. It actually won the Spiel des Jahres this year, and that is Cascadia. Yeah, so I am a little annoyed that I did not get to play this, but I sat down and listened to enough of the teach and then came back later and watched you guys playing for a couple mm-hmm. minutes. It's a really neat game. I think I probably still like Calico better. So the interesting thing about Cascadia, I think that probably there's a little bit more variability in Cascadia than sure. in Calico. Sure. The other big difference between these two, so these two games are constantly compared to each other yeah. all the time. The other big difference between these two is that with Calico, your board has the inset hex board in it. So it's a fixed area and like, you exactly you fill have your to board play yes. into your board and fill your board in cascadia you're placing your tiles into your tableau so you can build them kind of however you want to yeah so the nice thing about cascadia is that there's all these different kinds of animals and depending on which card you have up almost kind of like in a quacks of quedlinburg kind of way like depending on which books you mm, have out mm-hmm, like the mm-hmm. tokens are the same but the books are different kind of so thing. the way they score the is way different. they score is yeah. different depending yeah. on which cards you have up There's also this kind of neat mechanic where the tiles come up next to an animal token and you take that pair to put onto your board. That token doesn't necessarily have to go on that tile. It could go onto a different tile, but you take them as a pair. Unless you spend pinecone tokens to allow you to take a different animal thing that's lined up with a different tile. So you're not paired off anymore. They're not paired off anymore. So that's kind of an interesting additional wrinkle. Yeah. That, you know, sometimes if you don't have pinecone tokens, you might not be able to take the set that you really want. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's this... And then if there's a pinecone icon on a tile, when you put an appropriate animal on that tile, you get a pinecone, right? So there's that whole kind of sub-mechanic to the game. It's like another form of currency that kind of floats around to just to add a little bit more complexity to the games. So that's Cascadia. I mean, again, there's four or five different ways of scoring for every kind of animal. So there's a lot of replayability in there. I understand why this game won and why again, Calico, I don't even think Calico was nominated the year it came out. But that tighter puzzle of Calico, I think, especially for someone like you who really loves Sagrada, I feel well, like and Calico just kind of fits It's that same sort of idea. You. Calico is all about being able to see the pattern of what you're trying to build. Well, there's and, some of that in Cascadia, too. Right, I mean, right. you have the scoring conditions are things like lay these things out in a line or make sure they're all connected or make sure they're only connected by one face. Yeah. You know, things and like I that. get that. And that's patterns too. So it looks to me like Cascadia is certainly more open and there are more choices that you can make. But that also means that there's more constantly coming back and trying to do the math and what works better for me here. Whereas in Calico... Usually I get a couple turns in and I know what I'm looking for. Right. And if I'm not getting what I'm looking for, then I'm trying to kind of shoehorn that off in the corner somewhere. So 
I definitely see why people like Cascadia. It seems like a great game. I think for me, I prefer the harder but more concrete puzzle of Calico, but I'd be happy to play Cascadia sometime. For me, I think I prefer Calico, and the reason why is that I feel like, and I couldn't name a game off the top of my head if you, you know, put a gun to my head kind of thing, but like, I feel like the pleasure centers that Cascadia was hitting get hit in other games. Okay. And I felt like there was something a little bit more unique about the tight puzzle in Calico. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I just felt like I get enough out of Calico and there's enough uniqueness in Calico that what I got out of Cascadia didn't really feel that unique. Not just because of Calico, but because of other games that fill that need for me. I was going to say, not that it's stylistically the same at all, but the theme is there and a little bit of the play feels similar. I'm thinking like Ecos First Continent. With yeah, Cascadia. yeah, because you're building out the board in that game. Yeah, that that would be a very you know si- similar kind of idea. I mean, in in Ecos, it's a common. It is you know, a common board. land area like, rather yes, than the but, point. Yeah. Is there's differences, but yeah. I just feel like the thing that I was trying to solve in Cascadia, that kind of idea I have in other games. I I don't know. I'm not really sure. I can't. That's can't not really a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, about, like it just like Keyflower is a good example of a game where everybody has their own board and you're building it out based on the puzzle that you kind of have in your head. Again, different kind of puzzle, mm-hmm. much more complicated game. I love Keyflower. I love that game. So I don't know. I I would play Cascadia again. It's fine. It's fun. But I don't mind the fact that we have that game about quilts and cats. Good because I really like it. <laughs> and that's what's important is the ability to get it to the table. <laughs> Speaking of the ability to get things to the table, one of the places we were on vacation, I pulled out someone else's copy of Roll For It and played with our two boys. Sweet. Roll For It is a very simple dice rolling and set collection game. And this is another one where we had played it before, but only on my phone as a pass and play. So I think they really enjoyed the physicality of rolling the dice, deciding what scorecard to put them on. And, you know, the different strategies and techniques of what you're going to go for and how many dice you're going to commit and how many you're going to keep back to keep trying with. Mm-hmm. I would highly recommend this for your non-gamer, quote unquote, family, or for any time that you want to play a game that's only going to take 10 or 15 minutes, even if you have six or seven or eight players. If you get Roll For It, the deluxe edition, it goes up to eight right out of the tin. Yeah, I know that Stafford or Nick loves this game. He plays it with his Nani all the time. Mm-hmm. I guess she gets a little uh, crazy. But uh, yeah, that's a good one for kind of mixed audience, generational kind of play kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. And as you already previously mentioned, we also played a bunch of Super Mega Lucky Box, mm-hmm. which... The game rules. I, I love that I game. I love that game. It's such a good game. Well, why don't we do this? So we didn't even mention our topic this week. We... <laughs> Are going to dig deep. This is a... I know you're listening, Dr. Michael McCabe. You are going to love this one. We are going to take a look at board gaming and computational thinking. So, Anitra, you and I are both programmers. We both have computer science degrees. Yes, we do. You're currently a stay-at-home mom. For 13 years now, yeah. (laughs) You are an amazing stay-at-home mom. Well, thank you. But we are both programmers, and we both think like programmers. And so what we wanted to do was take a show and talk about that. And we did some research, and I I have linky goodness 
in the show notes. There is research. There I is mean, scientific research. Legit research. And we're going to get into that second half of the show. Ha ha ha. The last thing that we're going to do for the first half of the show is uh, we mentioned we were on vacation. We were in the great state of Michigan on the way home because we live in Massachusetts. It is actually faster to cut through Canada, which we did. And when we were in a rest stop on our way back, we stopped at a Canadian rest stop. By the way, Canadian rest stops are like the nicest rest stops I have ever seen in my life. Man, there are not very many of them between Michigan and New York State, but the ones that are there are great. I actually, I don't know if you know this, but when we were in that uh, convenience store at the rest stop, there was a giant display of, I think, Ruffles All Dressed Chips with a huge maple leaf behind them. It oh, was that's like perfect. the most Canadian display ever. <laughs> so, of course, I stood in front of it, took a selfie, and sent it to some of my guy friends because it was just such a wonderfully Canadian thing. Anyway, while we were at said rest stop, we found Crystal Pepsi. I didn't even know that the Pepsi Corporation still made this anywhere in the world. Neither did I. And our kids were like, what? What is this stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, I had Crystal Pepsi in the 90s, you know, when it first came out in the United States. So we bought a bottle and we did kind of an impromptu for science in the car. And uh, I would say that my mind was changed over the course of the recording. And you're going to hear about that right now. We are in a uh, rest stop in Canada, just off the highway, and- Hello, everybody! We're here! Woo! (laughs) And what did we find but some Crystal Pepsi? Gotta love Canada. Bringing the old stuff, or keeping the old stuff Keeping the old stuff, I guess. And our kids saw this, and they're like, what is that? Oh, this has caffeine. I didn't didn't realize that it had caffeine. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm conditioned by Sprite. It also has sugar. Lots of sugar. (sighs) (laughs) All right. Well, anyway- um, we thought we would do an impromptu science with Crystal Pepsi, which I haven't had for like 25 years. So here it goes. Okay. I want to see if it's as disgusting as I remember. It's not. It is significantly less disgusting than yeah. I remember. Okay, we're going to Claire. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Have a sip. Elliot. Try not to spill it all over yourself. All right. Tastes like Sprite. And Asher. It tastes like Sprite. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't taste like Sprite. It kind of. I mean, it has the fizziness of Sprite. Okay, sure. That's, I mean, that's and, so. And good. it looks like Sprite because it's clear. Yeah. All right. So, what do we think it tastes like? Tastes like Pepsi. I think it actually tastes kind of like a cross between Diet Pepsi and Coke Zero. Yeah. That's what it tastes like. I get that. I get a serious Coke Zero vibe from. I this. get a. I get a weird berry flavor. Okay. I don't really taste I mean, the, think, the cola at all. Yeah, I don't really taste the cola. Right, right. Well, but I can see how like it. I can see how Elliot thinks it tastes like Sprite because I think it also kind of tastes like Sprite. Okay, bit. that's interesting. You don't think that's like a psychosomatic thing because it's clear. I I mean I think if you if you like put like m- m- fill the bottle with mostly Sprite and then put a little bit of cola. Okay, I'll that's take one more like sip. I still think it's it's more of like that kind of Coke Zero kind of thing, but I guess if you blind, you know, maybe if you uh, gave it to me in a blind taste test, maybe I wouldn't be able to tell the difference, especially because it's not like this is something you can get in the states normally. Yeah. So. Yeah. How about you, Asher? What did you think? It tasted like Pepsi. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Well, I suppose tasting like Pepsi is probably what they were That's going for. That's a good thing. I mean, it says clear cola right on the yeah. label. So, all right. Well, that is a little impromptu uh, for science from the family gamers. Well, that was Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> that was something, all right. If you want to send us weird foods to try for <laughs> science, you certainly can. You can send those weird foods to The Family Gamers, 60 Auburn Street, number 528, Auburn, Massachusetts, 01501. And we'll eat them on the show. Why not? But I think it's time to take a break. I'm tired. We haven't done this in a while. Oh, <laughs> man. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about computational thinking in board games. All right. We'll be right back. Okay, Anitra, it's edible. Uh, okay. How about we put out meat, food, and farm. Okay. Three out of three. Oh, man. <laughs> We're gonna have to dial it in further then. This is a snap review for Master Word. Master Word is a cooperative word-guessing game. It feels a little bit like 20 questions crossed with the classic board game, Mastermind. We just gave you a snapshot of what it would look like, kind of. But you'll see in this video how it looks on the table. Master Word was developed by Gerard Catio and published by Scorpion Mask and Yellow. The game supports up to six players and around last about 15 minutes. So let's talk about the art in Master Word. <laughs> I love it when you give me the easy ones. What art? <laughs> well, the game has all these word cards and then some dry erase cards to use for clues. There are thumbs up tokens to show when things are correct. And that's it. But that's all this game needs. So great job on the design because you don't actually need much art to make it work. And the graphic design that is there is perfect. All right, speaking of the design of the game, how do you play this game? What are the mechanics for Master Word? Well, let's talk about these dry erase cards and the word cards and how to play. One person is the clue giver or guide. The rest are seekers. The guide takes the deck box, pulls the card up enough to see the actual word beneath. Then they put it down and show the top, just the category, to the rest of the players. Flip over the timer and the seekers discuss what they think might be good clues to help narrow down potential answers from the category that they know to figure out the target word. Each seeker writes their own clue and all of them are pushed into the middle of the table. These should really be yes-no clues, like in 20 questions, because the guide only has two things they can do. They can ask clarifying questions of the clues, which may be slight clues in and of themselves. Remember, cooperative game. But then they put a number of these thumbs up tokens at the end of the row of clues, showing how many apply to the word that everyone's trying to guess. In the case of our example here, we've joined a four player game. Our category, edible, has three clues, meat, food, and from the farm. The guide said all three were correct, so we've got three tokens at the end of the line. But you've gotta be careful. Each seeker has six clue cards, so six rounds of guessing. But if a seeker puts the actual answer on a clue card, everyone loses. Wah, wah. 
eventually the seekers will think they know the answer. They have three total solution cards they can use. One of the seekers can write an answer on a solution card instead of a clue on a clue card. If they're right, everybody wins! At any time, once per game or once per word, the guide can take a thumbs up token and put it on a particular clue card. If the seeker's conversation is getting off track, this is a helpful way to bring everyone back from the edge. So, Andrew, what did we expect from Masterword? Um, honestly, like, I didn't really have expectations. I had heard good things about it, but our kids often have a hard time with word puzzles, so I was a little nervous. Party games also can be a lot of fun, but in a mixed age group, a lot of times younger ones can get left out, and that's never something that we actually like. Scorpion Mask does make good stuff. I mean, they made the zombie kid stuff, so we have a lot of faith in their development. But um, with this one, I was kind of holding my breath. It kind of looks like Mickey Mouse on the box, but it's a word game. I was mostly just really confused about what this game was actually about. So let's talk about what surprised us about Master Word. Well, it feels very different from other word guessing games, even other cooperative games like Just One. The guide has a built-in motivation to push the seekers in the right direction. So instead of a game where they're just doing some kind of rote hiding the answer, the act of asking questions about the clues in particular ways can let the guide be creative as well. I think that's a really, really interesting part of this game. Because every seeker gets to write their own clue, every person has their own agency, even though it's a cooperative game. Plus, kids sometimes come up with some crazy stuff. Sometimes we'll be looking in one direction, but the kids with their wild brains will take the conversation in a totally different direction, and maybe that's actually the right direction. Even if it's not, it can still help narrow down what's there. One of the cool things about this game is that you can write duplicate clues, and it doesn't actually hurt you. I really like the way this game actively encourages the interplay between everybody at the table. Mm -hmm. A parent can be the guide and steer the conversation with clever questions while the kids let their creativity fly. Or you can mix the ages of the seekers for some really wild stuff. I was really surprised how engaging this game was, more than I expected, especially on the clue-giving or guide side of the table. So, Nitra, what are we going to rate Masterword from Scorpion Mask? I think we're going to give it four out of five clue cards. Oh, and before we finish, it was bacon. Definitely edible. Definitely edible. And that's Masterword in, in a snap. snap. And we're back. Hello, hello. So let's talk about computational thinking. What is computational thinking? Well, computational thinking has a couple of different discrete elements to it. Mm. One is the ability to abstract ideas. This is important in a lot of parts of life, mm -hmm. but especially important when you're thinking about programming. Another part of computational thinking is decomposing, breaking up a big problem into smaller problems. This also is important in a lot of parts of life and is beginning to sound like something that we see fairly often in board games. I would say that's absolutely true. So 
we did a lot of research on this topic, and there's a lot of really good articles and papers and research that have already been done about computational thinking. We're going to include a link to this paper in the show notes. It's called Board Games and Computational Thinking. In the introduction, it says, many countries are currently in the process of implementing computational thinking in their primary and secondary education systems. The practical aspects of this process and even the definition of computational thinking itself vary greatly from country to country. Computational thinking as a subject is sometimes associated to math and other theory-heavy subjects, while in other contexts it is considered more similar to a craft as art and design. Regardless of the approach to computational thinking, the introduction of this new subject in the existing curriculum presents challenges and problems for teachers and learners as well as opportunities. And many analyses have been performed that have found that structured teaching about what computational thinking is and how to do it is helpful in basically every form of life. Our uh, our friends at the Game Schooler podcast. I told you this was a I Dr. Know. Michael McCabe topic. <laughs> this is some of the same skills that they talk about every week when they talk about their top skills that a game teaches. Things like abstract thinking. They wouldn't use this term, but Algorithms, being able to apply the same formula or same pattern to different sets of incoming data to get to a result. And I don't think you mentioned pattern recognition. I don't know, maybe you did. But pattern recognition is another very, very important thing when we talk about the analysis of incoming data in order to perform a certain function. Yeah. So... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a, another word jumble. This is the abstract for one of the first papers that I read that really talked about this subject. This one is called Training Computational Thinking Through Board Games, The Case of Crabs and Turtles. Now, that probably sounds familiar, crabs and turtles. It should sound familiar because crabs and turtles, as it is described, is a lot like the game Robot Turtles, which we've brought up before. And after I read this abstract, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about some other stuff um, as well. But here's the abstract of this paper. This is, again, tra Training Computational Thinking Through Board Games, The Case of Crabs and Turtles. This was written by Katerina Sarava, Corbinian Moeller, and Manuel Ninwaus. I probably screwed somebody's name up. I apologize. I'm very bad at that. But here's the abstract. As a cognitive ability, computational thinking describes a specific way of algorithmic reasoning built on concepts and processes derived from computer programming or coding. So that's really kind of where this idea comes from. Yeah. Recently, computational thinking was argued to be a fundamental and educationally relevant 21st century skill that should be fostered in childhood. Accordingly, we, the writers of this paper, developed three life-size board games, Crabs and Turtles, a series of computational adventures, aimed at providing an unplugged and low-threshold introduction to computational thinking. In particular, the games aimed at producing basic coding concepts and computational thinking processes to eight to nine-year-old primary school children. In the current study, we first described the design of the games in detail blah, blah, blah. We then report on a first empirical evaluation of feasibility and user experience. We conducted quantitative analyses of player experience and qualitative feedback of adult student participants and a sample of gamification experts and teachers. We examined users' game experience with an adult population to ensure the game's appropriateness. Results indicated overall positive game experience for all three games. Future studies would be desirable, which should evaluate player experience and learning outcomes in the primary target population of children. What in the world does that mean? You look like you have no idea what that means. It was too many words. I'm sorry. <laughs> I warned you it was going to be a lot of words. Here's what this means. Yes, the idea of computational thinking comes from computer programming. However, 
educational authorities across the world have more or less agreed that the fundamental tenets of computational thinking are critical 21st century skills, and they should be taught to children. Because what computational thinking does at its root is teach people how to break problems apart into things that they can fix when they look like they're too complicated. And it simplifies them and makes them surmountable. Yeah. At the core, that's what this is. And so what they did here is they made three games where kids could play the games because what you really need to do with computational thinking is you really need to just get reps in. Right. It's, it's like anything. Your brain is a big muscle. Right. If you want to learn how to swing a bat, if you want to learn how to kick a ball, the best way to do it is to get reps in and to get some guidance and to get more reps in. And games are a great way to practice and to hone those skills. And so that's what we kind of wanted to talk about here. So, oh, Anitra, can you give me an example of what abstraction is? It's a thing that most board games actually already do. <laughs> which is take a big concept and represent it through something smaller and simpler, like, for example, little pieces of cardboard or little wooden <laughs> meeples. So if you've ever heard the term pasted on, like you talk about a theme being pasted onto something, the concept that's happening when a theme is put onto a set of board game mechanics is essentially an abstraction. Yeah. Right? And it's using a board game mechanic to represent a real-life problem. And when we say a theme is pasted on, that means that the abstraction is not very good. Like, the game may be good, but, like, representing this concept, it's doing a, eh, okay job, well, but not super great. I don't know great. that it's necessarily saying that it's not very good, but I think that what it's saying is that the abstraction can be applied to many different kinds of circumstances. I right? mean, the, the abstraction is not a core mechanical concept in the game. Yes, in the it's game. It's just associated with a mechanical concept. For example, in Draftosaurus, which is one of our favorites, it does feel very much like you're making some kind of theme park and doing some kind of set collection. Mm-hmm. Does it need to be with dinosaurs? No, it does not. Do I care? No, no I, I do, do not. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's that's a good example of like some parts of that abstraction are strong, the different areas of the theme park and how they score, and some areas of the abstraction are weak, like oh, there are dinosaur meeples. Why is it dinosaurs? Because dinosaurs are fun. That's it. Sure. All right, so that's what abstraction is. Abstraction is something that you see in basically every game. And one of the things really interesting about game design, and I'm, I don't think we're really going to get into the kind of the topic of game design. There are many <laughs> podcasts that you can Ooh. look at if that's something that you really want to talk about, is that it's taking abstraction kind of to the nth degree, where it's, it's really, I and mean, we talk about abstract games, yeah. right? And abstract games, in theory, all of the mechanics that you see in thematic games are also present in abstract games, but in abstract games, they are taken to their kind of farthest potential, their farthest degree, because all it's really doing fundamentally is focusing on that pure mechanic. Right. So most themed games use the theme to help teach you the mechanics of the game in some way, or help you remember the mechanics of the game. Or even help it fit together. Link the mechanics together. Yeah. Right. They're the glue that sits between two different kinds of mechanics right. to make something work. Like engine building is something that very frequently goes well with another mechanic. And it's often the theme that ties those two things that together. That makes those work out. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
So let's talk about another one. We're going to talk about decomposing. Decomposing is something that is really, really interesting. And it's kind of hard to talk about without talking about another one of these things, which is algorithms. But let's talk about decomposing first, and then we can go into al- – because algorithms ultimately are the method by which you recompose something that you've decomposed, right? Yeah. So decomposing is the ability to break down data or processes or problems into smaller parts or make manageable tasks. So we were talking about this ahead of time, and something like a barren park – What's your goal in Barron Park? Your goal is to fill four park squares completely and get the highest score as you do so. But that's not just a, <laughs> hey, I fill, I fill squares. Right. Great. It's not a one-step process. Yeah. And you break that down into pieces. Well, you only start with one of the four squares. What are the things you can do? You place a tile down, and where you place that tile determines what tiles you pick up next, You've broken this down now into I'm going to work on one or two turns at a time to work towards that eventual goal. And we see this in everything. One thing that I decompose all the time is arithmetic, right? Like that's something where I I break it apart. (laughs) I do the separate pieces. I put it all back together. It allows me to do arithmetic pretty fast. It's really, really helpful for me. Another great example of decomposing, especially as we start to talk about our next thing, which is algorithms, is engine builders. Any engine builder, at its core, if you decompose the process, so your goal is to get the most points, well, to get the most points, you need to grow your engine, and the way in which you grow your engine is through this careful resource management, so you have to break it apart into, okay, I have to get a resource, and then that resource is going to fit into this other thing, and then we kind of talk about this process of getting your engine going, and now you've got this kind of cyclical engine, that's because you've got a resource management algorithm that you've put in place because you were able to decompose the problem. Well, and in some engine builders, at least, you can do that decomposition doing it both backward and forward. Because it can be a, I need to get resources to put in my engine. I need to build my engine to get better resources, you know, and get points along the way. But it can also be like, hey, I have this piece of engine that's really good at turning. I'm going to use Century Golem as an example here. It's really good at turning yellow gems into blue gems. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I look around out there, can I get another piece that will turn blue gems into other things? Well, that's decomposition. Well, and that's the decomposition is you can do it forwards like that. You can also do it backwards and say, I want this goal, you know, that has these kind of gems on it. Let me start looking at my engine pieces. What pieces do I still need to get what I want? Right. And essentially what this is, is whether you're doing it forward or backwards, it's the ability to look at the atomic parts of the whole. That's decomposition. And then you can solve for issues with that atomic part to get it to fit into the yeah. whole algorithmic process. Is that part missing? Is that part exactly. broken? Is that part simply in the wrong place, depending on how your engine builder or whatever works? But that's decomposition. And yeah, engine builders are the best example of this. But this whole thing comes up in lots of different board games. Think of anything where you have a hand of cards. Like, okay, I have a hand of cards. Which ones do I want to keep? Which ones do I want to use? Even that is a form of decomposition. Okay. And then, you know, when we talk about a lot of this stuff, we can talk about a game like, I don't know, Robo Rally. It's a racing game where the player's objective is moving their token to various objectives as fast as possible. Tokens are controllable indirectly by creating a plan using cards. Yeah. Right? So you're kind of 
putting this stuff together, you're creating an algorithm that represents the instructions to be executed. You plan this whole thing in secret, and then actions are revealed one at a time. Uh, players can interfere with each other, whatever. But this is this whole kind of idea of you're breaking things into single pieces, and then you're putting a bunch of those single pieces together to create an algorithm. Right? Yes. Like, okay, I need to move over here. I need to turn. I need to do the next thing. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about Robot Turtles. So we've talked about Robot Turtles on this show. Robot Turtles and Quirky Circuits are the two games that have a lot of the similarity. Actually, with Robo Rally, it's a little bit less competitive than Robo Rally. But yeah, these are deck programming games where you're not really competing as you program. Mm-hmm. You're really just focused on your goal of I want to get my guy to this place. And here are the steps I need to get there. Yeah, I mean, Robot Turtles at its purest is a parent-child teaching tool to yes. teach decomposition and algorithms. Yes. That is what it is. Kids have kind of an objective, which is take my turtle, get them to the gym. And they have cards in their hand that represent, or tiles, I don't even remember anymore, turn left, turn right, use the laser, you know, if there's ice in the way, uh, move forward. Things like this. And I remember when we played this with our now oldest, I guess she was always our oldest, uh, uh, we did it where it was like, okay, play the next card, play the next card, play the next card. And then after a while, it was like, okay, set up five in a row or set up three in a row yeah, and just kind of work through the decomposition. I need to move straight. I need to turn left. I need to move straight. I need to turn right. I need to move straight. I need to move straight. Those Mm -hmm. that's decomposing the steps and then create an algorithm that could be used to do something. And then there was even the concept of recursion in right, that game, so, which kind of gets into pattern matching. So algorithms is really what a lot of us are starting to think of when we think of computer programming. Yes, absolutely. Because that's kind of the core here, but that's sort of the last step. You need to already be able to do some decomposition. You need to recognize the patterns that you see and be able to repeat them. Mm-hmm. Part of creating an algorithm is even being able to understand loops, which is a different type of decomposing, recomposing, and recognizing that a pattern can be used over and over again. Loops, functions, sequences of actions that you can take, and even some games, a few games out there, will let you use conditional statements in the way that you, quote-unquote, program your algorithm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of physical games that are out there that allow you to do a lot of this with physical building as well. These aren't really board games so much like a game like Turing Tumble is more of kind of a, oh, you'd call it sort of a a physical physical learning puzzle game kind of thing where you're dropping marbles into the top of this thing. And depending on the order in which these things come, they hit physical logic gates, essentially. Which is amazing. Which is super cool. It's almost like the world's most complicated Plinko board. Uh, <laughs> but it's a really, really neat way to work through a lot of this stuff. And I mean, that gets almost into electrical engineering in some ways, but the concepts are still the same. And there's a reason why it's called Turing. Speaking of which, it is Gen Con right now, and Hachette has just released the Turing Machine game. I really, really, really want to play that game really badly. If anyone who's listening to this has been to Gen Con, saw the game played, maybe picked up a copy of that game, would you please send us a message and tell us what you think about it? Okay, yes, please. So yeah, I mean, that I think is is really the core of this. I mean, we could talk a little bit more about uh, pattern recognition with, you know, games like Quirkle or Lantern, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that we talked about earlier when I mentioned Lattice Hawaii. Yeah, things like Quirkle and Lanterns and Iota, 
even some cooperative games that I can think of have some element of this pattern recognition as well. Things like Forbidden Island or Catch, which we reviewed oh, years and ago. years yeah, ago. Yeah. Now. I really, really actually liked that game a lot. Probably like unreasonably so. I think that you yeah. rolled your eyes at me a lot when I talked about how much I like that game. Well, what about a game like The Whatnot Cabinet? Yes. That is exactly the same thing. Yes, that is that kind of pattern recognition. I actually, the whatnot cabinet kind of feels a lot like a like a calico or a sagrada, where you're trying to get your pattern set up in multiple dimensions. So every item you're placing is affecting both your columns and your rows, and you have to have that multi-dimensional thinking to make the game work. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of games that are out there. We talked about a bunch of them. We mentioned Robo Rally and Quirkle and, and, and Robot Turtles and, and a whole bunch of other ones. But we really did want to talk about this whole idea of computational thinking because for us, it's a topic that is near and dear to our hearts. Decomposing, abstraction, algorithms, and pattern recognition. I mean, really, basically all board games have some level of abstraction in them. Most board games have some kind of decomposition in them. And then when you get into things like algorithms that's a little bit more of a kind of specific sort of technical thing but you're still going to see that in a whole lot of games yeah we would be remiss if we did not mention potato pirates oh yes this is a game specifically designed to teach a lot of these programming concepts including ones i talked about earlier like loops and conditionals those are items i don't normally see in a board game so i'm going to bring you all the way back 241 episodes <laughs> We interviewed Aditya Batura, the co-founder and CEO of Kodomo Incorporated. They created Potato Pirates. This was way back in 2017, almost five years ago, wow. when Potato Pirates was just coming on the scene. We talked about Robot Turtles on the show, but we also talked a lot about Potato Pirates, which at that point was just hitting Kickstarter. The and game's like, out. You can get it. Yes. I think there's a sequel. You can go out. You can get that, There too. might be multiple sequels the at this is, point. The game is hilarious and ridiculous. And it is cute. It's cute. And it does. It teaches recursion. It teaches looping. It teaches all sorts of really more technical programming concepts, but in a way that is absolutely consumable by you know anybody in your family that can read. Yeah. And they'll enjoy uh, attacking each other with things like mash and fry. <laughs> And wasn't there like great or, ha- or something, something like that? Yeah, something. I don't know. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. But that is Potato Pirates. Highly recommend it. A ton, a ton of fun. So when we were putting together material for this show, I was kind of surprised that I didn't see too many mentions of Boolean logic. Because I feel like the world of mathematics and computers opened up to me as soon as I began to understand Boolean logic. Sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. So for anybody who doesn't know what this is, I will quickly explain. Boolean logic is a few different kinds of logical statements that will always work the same way. There's an if statement, there's and or not. And there's a couple of other variations on these things. X or X and all that stuff. But the idea here being X and Y are true, you know, means that both of them have to be true or both of them have to be false. X or Y is true means either one of them can be true or both of them could be true. X not Y means only one of them can ever be true sort of thing. Yeah. In order to In order to do whatever your thing is. And I remember the moment in high school when this just opened up for me. 
And I think I was... And doves flew in the windows. <laughs> it did kind of feel that way. And the clouds parted. I was like, wait, this is math? This makes sense. And a voice from the heaven said, behold my math in which I am well pleased. <laughs> no? <laughs> Maybe not quite to that extent. <laughs> but I think part of the reason I picked up on it right away is because I already enjoyed what we've talked about in the past on the show, logic and deduction puzzles. Mm -hmm. And so I think playing those kind of puzzles and games is a great way to introduce some of those concepts without using any of that Boolean language, but to get kids thinking in that mindset. So games like Outfoxed or Conclusio or The Key or Perlock Holmes, games where you have limited information and you're using that to figure out something that's hidden. You could even do this with traditional clue. That works fine. There's just a lot of roll and move and other stuff mixed into that game. Yeah, I mean, what I think what you're describing at its core is the kind of fundamentals of decomposition expressed as Boolean logic through deduction. Sure. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I just wasn't thinking of it in those terms exactly. Mm -hmm. But I think these kind of deduction games are a great way to get your brain moving in that direction specifically. Awesome. Well, I mean, this is a topic about which we are fairly passionate given our academic studies <laughs> and, uh, and professional interests. And it's certainly something that I think probably a lot of our listeners have at least some degree of fondness for. <laughs> That's just conjecture on my part. I know it's a little bit more heady of a topic than, you know, here's five games you can play with your kids. But I think it's really, really interesting because it really underscores how helpful some video games and also most board games can be in the cognitive development of our kids. I mean, gaming, as many people know, gets, you know, poo-pooed frequently, right? Of course, everybody knows our tagline, play games <laughs> with your kids. Board games gets less of a bad rap than video games do, but... It, I think, is really helpful to look at this stuff with a critical eye and say, no, there really is something genuinely helpful and educational about the greater context, the greater fabric of the stuff that we spend so much time talking about. Well, and I think that even for kids or adults who don't think of themselves as being technically minded, wouldn't count themselves as being interested in computer programming having some understanding of these sort of logical steps, the abstraction, the decomposition, and algorithms specifically will help you understand how the world of computers works. Mm -hmm. Even if you are not ever going to dive behind the code and do the nitty gritty, our world is full of computers. And working in this kind of roundabout way will help you understand that world that you live in better. Well, and again, like at its core, these are problem solving tools. Yes. I mean, they, yes, the, the theory here expressed itself from computer programming and the foundations of computer theory, but they are problem solving tools. They will help your kids or you learn how to reckon with and solve a problem in your life, whether it has to do with a computer or not. Yes. So they are helpful across the board. And I think that that's what we saw referenced in that abstract for that paper, how academia in general has acknowledged that, no, this is something that even kids should be learning. So, Yeah, I agree. 
All right. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have some thoughts about this as well. Maybe this is something where you have more questions. Maybe you have comments of your own. As always, we love to include backtalk in our shows. We won't take it from our kids, but we love it from you. And we would love it if you had any thoughts about this topic, if you would share them with us. And of course, let us know if we can share them on next week's show or the show after that. There's lots of different ways that you can get a hold of us to tell us about these things. You can email us. Mm-hmm. Andrew at thefamilygamers.com. Anitra at thefamilygamers.com. Or there is lots of social media out there. All of the social media. On pretty much everything, you can find us at Family Gamers AA. We're there on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. You can join the Family Gamers community on Facebook. You can just search for it on Facebook or you can go to thefamilygamers.com slash community. And there's a link to that in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. You can check out our videos on YouTube. Yes, that's where our snap reviews are. You can go to youtube.com slash thefamilygamers. You can, of course, check out our Family Gamers and Play Games With Your Kids merchandise. Yep, you can go to thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. I actually extended the episode 300 sale for another month. If it doesn't work, send me an email. So here's what happened. I found this out. I didn't know this. Our margins are fairly small on our merch. It, they're, in fact, every single thing that is on our merch site is under the recommended sale price. So episode 300 gives you 30% off. Some of our margins are under 30%. So if you want to pick something up and it doesn't work, it's because of that reason. Send me a message. I will custom make you a code. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about the show. Leave us a review, please, at Apple Podcast or whatever your podcast subscription source is. If you write out a little review, that helps out a ton, an absolute ton. You can also find us on Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places. Everywhere your friendly podcast provides. And because we mentioned Dr. Michael, you can find us on Overcast. (laughs) The Family Gamers is sponsored, as usual, by First Move Financial. Please go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers and learn how the team there can help you pile up the victory points. Thanks so much to First Move Financial for sponsoring this episode of the show. Next week, we're going to have Nick Martinelli on the show as our guest. He is going to Gen Con only one day, so not a ton of coverage, but he's going to be going. We're going to ask him about some stuff. I did tell him to check out Turing Machine, so hopefully we will get some feedback from him. But until next week, everybody... Play games with your kids.